Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. Before we get started with the lesson, I want to read a Bible verse I've been memorizing. This is, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleased, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Psalm 1914. I also want to thank my one and only sponsor, my mom, who saved her money just for me to pay for this little radio station, uh, radio show me also known as a podcast. And if you'd like to uh, help out financially, you can give for less than a cup of coffee, starting at $3 to my coffee account is KO-FI, KO-FI. And 
It's a uh, uh, coffee k k o dash f i slash smiley miles. That's k o dash f i dot com forward slash smiley smiles spelled s m i l e y s m i l e s. And thanks for listening. Truth be told, radio. And now, John MacArthur facing a tolerant world with an intolerant truth. Here on Truth Be Told Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John that unpacks 15 Greek words in Scripture that explain a stunning paradox, how a God of perfect justice can show mercy to sinners who deserve only punishment. Request your free booklet titled 15 Words of Hope by writing to hope at gty.org. That's hope at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2023. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. It always strikes me that this is such a strange time of year because all of our calendars and our normal functions in life get thrown into chaos. I want to make sense not not out of the mundane, but out of the things that really matter. And I want to frame that, if I may, in this way. In the book of Esther, in chapter 1, you don't need to learn look at it, there is a very interesting statement about King Ahasuerus, a pagan king, the king of the Persian Empire, who ruled from about 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. And it says concerning him, that he surrounded himself with wise men. That's the first chapter of Esther. And they are defined this way, who understood the times. That's really what wisdom should do. Even pagans understand that. Perhaps more applicable to us is the same basic comment with regard to the sons of Issachar. You will remember First Chronicles 11 and 12. David is gathering his army, tens of thousands of soldiers from all over Israel. And they're coming together. And it says of the sons of, Ezekar, of uh, Issachar that they had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. First Chronicles 12.32 There were all kinds of men of war. They could keep their ranks. They could follow orders. They had a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. But particularly useful to David were the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. I think in any era, certainly for the people of God, it's critical to understand the times. And I want to see if I can't help you a little bit with that this morning as we embark upon a new year. 
Now, obviously, in a, in a general sense, we could say this is a post-Christian time. We could say it's even further an anti-Christian time. We could go a step beyond that and say it is anti-scriptural. And we could even say it's an anti-Christ time. Decades of corrupt thinking has killed Western society in the sense that it had Christian influence. Western culture, under the influence of Christianity, has disappeared in every aspect, from education to economics, from media to medicine, from politics to public health. It's all gone. Pride comes before a fall, Scripture says. And you might say that in this case, gay pride has been the final act that pushed the culture off the platform into the incoming train of divine judgment. And I think we need to understand that. And for a text, just to, to frame it, I want you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And I want to read from verses 16 through 30. Not that we're going to necessarily look at it. So observe what is being said here. We'll take a broad look rather than a detailed one. Our Lord speaks in Matthew 11:16. To what shall I compare this generation? And again, here is the wisdom of Christ evaluating the times, helping us understand the time of his life and ministry. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. Children would meet in the marketplace and play games. They would play games built around the experiences that the adults had that were normal to life. From Jewish culture, we know that funerals and weddings were biggest events, and so they would play wedding. They might even play funeral. And that shows up in this little illustration because these children call out to other children and say, come and play with us. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance as if they were playing a wedding. We sang a dirge for you as if they were playing a funeral and you didn't mourn. In other words, no matter what we did, you were peevish children unwilling to join us. And then he applies that, for John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. He was a solitary individual, antisocial, you might say, lived out in the wilderness, ate locust and wild honey, so he didn't participate in the social life of Israel, such as eating and drinking. And they said about him, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus entered into society. He spent time with people. He socialized. 
And they said, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, whatever approach was taken to bring the truth to them, whether it was the isolated approach of the prophet John the Baptist or the socially involved approach of our Lord himself, it didn't matter. They didn't care. They didn't want to participate. Verse 19 ends by saying, Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The truth will show up in spite of your indifference. Then in verse 20, we read this. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. There was plenty of reason for them to listen to him, and they refused. Even in the face of countless miracles, they didn't repent. So he pronounces judgment. On the villages in the north of Galilee, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, which were destroyed, in the day of judgment, then for you and you, Capernaum, the center of many of Christ's miracles, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You wouldn't listen to John the Baptist. You wouldn't listen to me. You wouldn't listen to the truth. And now I'm pronouncing judgment on you. And then in verse 25, there's a shift. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Why is it that we understand the times? Why is it that we understand the truth? Why is it that we embrace wisdom? Because it has been revealed to us by the Lord himself. Yes, Father, verse 26 for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. How marvelous is it to realize that while everyone else is in unbelief and rejection and consequently confusion, we know the truth because that's what God chose to deliver to us. Verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Again, the reason we know and the world doesn't know is not because we're smarter, it's because God in His sovereignty chose to reveal the truth to us. Sovereign grace. 
And then there's a broad invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The essential truth of this text is that the world is never going to understand the truth. They're never going to believe the truth, no matter how it's packaged, whether it's in the uniqueness of John the Baptist or the even more unique ministry of our Lord. It doesn't matter how powerful the preaching is, such as John the Baptist. It doesn't matter how powerful the miracles are. They don't believe. But there are some who do because it pleased God to choose them and to will that they know the truth. How do you know if you're one of those? Well, verse 28 is expansive. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Anyone who comes. So there's a distinction in this passage very clearly that there's going to be a small number of people who are called infants in this case. They're not many noble. They're not many wise. And they are the ones who know the truth. And they are the ones who have the responsibility to warn the rest. And that's exactly what our Lord did. And this is where we stand, I think, today. And you, you know this because we've said much about it. But decades of corrupt thinking have created the situation that we face in our world today. It's very different than 50 years ago, that's for certain. Aggressive efforts by real people for decades to eliminate biblical truth, the true worship of God, the gospel, the glory of Christ, Scripture, has de-Christianized our society. The death of truth, faith, hope, joy, integrity, virtue, relationships, family, purity, compassion, honesty, and in place of those things is cynicism and pessimism and nihilism and skepticism and drugs and pornography and isolation and depression and suicide and on it goes. And this anti-Christian avalanche finds a home in the minds and hearts of all sinners. You have to understand that. It's amiable to sinners. It suits them. Hostility toward God resides in every human heart to start with. So this kind of hostility toward God is acceptable to every sinner. To make matters worse, popular evangelical churches fear being out of touch with the culture. So they desperately try to become friends of the world, which is, according to James, hostility to God. So we have a declining culture that's already gone off the cliff, and we have a church that has 
done very little to prevent that. So this is where we stand. And the only way that we can face this world is with that understanding. It's a dire time. We can't toy with the world. We have to confront the world the way our Lord did in Matthew chapter 11. So that's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. More than ever before, we have to be faithful. We have to be the enemy of the world in the sense that we reject it. And in that way, we can actually be the friend of the world in the right way. I want to help you by giving you a little paradigm. So if you take notes on this, um, I'll lay out six separate words that will frame this up a little bit. But first, to just remind you of John 15, 18 and 19, the world hates you because you're not of the world. I chose you out of the world, Jesus said. This, this is antipathy. The world hates you. Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers of the false prophets. So you're never going to be faithful to the Lord and have a reputation with the world system. John 7.7, 7, that familiar verse, Jesus said, The world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And that is the necessary testimony of the church. I read this week, and maybe you did as well, a famous Christian singer is hosting a wedding for a lesbian relative because the lesbian relative is such a good Christian. That's acceptable in contemporary, quote-unquote, Christianity. But understand this. Men love darkness rather than light. John 3, because their deeds are evil. They love the darkness. So they're very accepting of the darkness when it's offered to them. And as I said, the church has worked so hard to embrace the world that it has never stood in the way of the destruction of this culture as it should have. So just exactly what are we dealing with? We're dealing with not necessarily a well-crafted theology, not like the liberalism of the past, not even like cults that are framed up in some kind of rational fashion. What we have is basically a rejection of the truth on a just a generic level. It could be any truth. It could be the truth of the gospel or the truth of your gender. The, the situation that we're in says there's no absolute truth. There's no absolute truth. That's, that's the current zeitgeist. No absolute truth. Moral relativism comes along and says there's no ultimate authority. Nobody can tell you how to behave morally. Personal freedom says there are no divine rules. And humanistic atheism says there's no sovereign judge. No absolutes, no ultimate authority, no divine rules, and no sovereign judge. And that's 
perfectly fine to the sinner. He likes that. That's amiable to him because that's natural to his fallen condition. So it's easy to create a whole culture that thinks that way because you already have an affinity to that kind of deception in every human heart. So in order to counter that, and I realize you could say a lot about it, but in order to counter that, I want to give you a series of one-word definitions that are very important that will frame up kind of a worldview. Word number one, objectivity. Objectivity. Now, what do I mean by that? We start with this reality, and this is sort of a um, theological approach to it, but stick with me and we'll show you how the Scripture supports it. The reality that the source of truth is completely outside of us. That's what objectivity means. Luther called the Bible the external word. It's fixed. It's complete. And it's outside of you and me and everyone else. This is profoundly essential. No truth, no truth was ever sourced by a human being. No truth ever originated with a human being. You may discover it. You may learn it. You may understand it. You may reject it. But you are not its source. Authentic Christianity demands that all truth is outside of us. And I mean the truth about everything. The truth about everything natural and supernatural. Truth is objective. No person has truth in himself. In other words, you don't determine truth. It all comes from God. That is a sweeping statement. It all comes from God. Whatever is true about the created world is true of the created world because God created it that way. Whatever is true about the spiritual world is true because that's the way God designed it. No human being or human beings are the origin of any truth at all, ever. No human is the source of establishing truth. In Galatians 1, Paul says, if an angel of God comes and says something other than the truth, don't believe. What someone thinks is true is irrelevant. That has nothing to do with whether it is true. There is no individual truth. There is only that which is true. And Scripture is God's revealed truth. This is where we know the spiritual realm as to its truth. False religion 
devises lies and calls it truth. Mysticism says you can find your own spiritual truth. You hear people say, well, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, and I don't go to church, but I'm spiritual. That is meaningless. There are things hard to understand. Second Peter 3.16. We understand that. There are things hard to understand. But they can be understood by an appropriate study of Scripture and analyzing Scripture in the way that it has to be analyzed in order to yield that truth. And I'll say more about that in a moment. No truth has ever come by the will of man. 2 Peter 1.20 All Scripture, 2 Timothy, is inspired by God. So let's just look at Scripture. Scripture is God's truth, whether it affects anyone or not. It's still true. It's an unchanging and eternal Word. Isaiah 40 tells us, Heaven and earth will pass away, My words will by no means pass away. Matthew 24, 35. So all truth is from God. All truth is objective. It's all outside of us. It would all be true if you never lived or had a thought or had an opinion. The meaning is determined by the Creator and not by any human being. In no way is spiritual truth ever defined by someone's experience. It's not unique to an individual. It is universally true. And of course, this deals a heavy blow to a very large segment of professing Christianity who are listening for the voice of God in their heads or seeking some kind of intuitive epiphany with the illusion the truth is out there and if they listen, they can hear it in an individual way. The Bible is the truth. It is objective truth. It is true by itself, whether you know it or believe it or not. Psalm 119, 160 The entirety of your word is truth. This is essential as a starting point. We affirm that completely. All truth is objective outside of us. No human being is the source of what is true. What is true is true because it is true. Let me give you some ways to think about that before I give you a second word. The foundation of reason kind of goes like this. And you'll pick it up pretty fast. What is reality is. What is reality is. That's identity. This is a reasonable approach to objective truth. Identity. What really is, is. It's not a question of human perception. It's a question of reality. It's the law of contradiction also 
that fits into this little scheme. Nothing can be and not be at the same time. Nothing can be and not be at the same time. So something cannot be true and not true at the same time. You can see where that simple law of non-contradiction has escaped this culture. And then exclusion. Everything is or is not. Now those are just simple ways to narrow down the reality The truth is what it is. It isn't something and something else at the same time. And what it is can never be denied. That leads to a second word. Rationality. Rationality. You have to approach truth rationally. The objective revelation of God in Scripture is to be understood rationally. That is by normal human reason. Scripture is logical. It is non-contradictory. It is clear. It is subject to mental assessment. There are no errors. There are no discrepancies. No lies. No unsound principles. Anything that contradicts Scripture is untrue. Anything that contradicts Reality is untrue. There are no fantasies. There are no absurdities. There are no myths. There are no other dimensions. There is reality, and reality is to be perceived rationally. Rationally. Truth is understood by the power of reason that God put in every human being. Rationally, that is by the mind and not understood mystically. I I keep thinking back to the gender issue. What is, is. And what is reality is reality and not something else at the same time. That's, That's insanity. So in order to navigate the world in which we live, We have to start with the fact that all truth is objective. All truth is outside of us. No human being or human beings are the origin of anything that is true. And that truth is discerned and ascertained by reason. A little bit of history on that. We have a exploding anti-intellectualism in our society. It's frightening. It's frightening. Every time you look at an ad on television, you see somebody with those massive goggles on their head living in la-la land, some fantasy world. You need to be reminded that this is escaping the world of reality, the world of truth, the rational world, into a fantasy. And people do that enough, they don't know the line between the two. Go back in American history a little bit, back to the arrival of the Puritan 
Americans prized the intellectual life for its contribution. Puritans were highly educated people. I was reading this week the literacy rate for men in early Massachusetts and Connecticut was as high as 95%. They founded colleges, taught their children to read and write before the age of six, studied art, science, philosophy, and other fields as a way of loving God with their mind. It was Puritan Cotton Mather who said, Ignorance is the mother not of devotion, but of heresy. They were strong on developing intellectual, rational powers. We're far from that. We are rapidly becoming more illiterate. Lower percentages of people who can read or think. This culture doesn't demand that. The trend continues. And even in the church, through mystical and charismatic movements and pragmatic movements that rely on emotion, intuition, personal interpretation of feelings and experiences. Even Christianity is not interested in the careful cultivation of the mind. Not interested. They, they want to use lights and music and entertainment and chord progressions to drive people's emotions in a certain direction. It has nothing to do with a sound mind. Now, what do we mean by rationality? We mean this, that the truth of anything can be known by common language, real people, actual history, observable facts. There are no secret meanings to the Bible. There are no allegories. There's no transcendental insights, no divine voices, no mystical interpretations. Again, mystery and mysticism says truth rises within us. Mysticism rejects the intellectual process and says you find the truth inside of you. That is a lie. So as Christians, we insist that the word objectivity define truth. Truth is objective outside of us rather than subjective inside of us. Secondly, it is rational. It is perceived by what is rational. Common language, real people, actual history, observable truth. It's not something other than what you can see because you say it is. So if you start with objectivity and then approach it with rationality, you come to a third word, veracity. That's just a word that means truth. The objective truth, understood rationally, I should say objectivity, understood rationally, leads to truth. You approach the Scripture, you approach anything in a rational way with your mind. Scripture is to be discerned by careful thinking. It is absolutely true and clear and sufficient. 
And all truth in the world is observable. That truth which is material truth is observable, and that's what science should be doing, observing that which can be seen and staying with the definition of reality rather than creating a fantasy world in which things that are not true are spoken of as if they were. Veracity comes to those who start with objectivity and use rationality. This is a process of mental discernment. Mental discernment. I know there's a lot of opinion today. People would like to have more dialogue as long as you agree with them. If you don't agree with them, they want to shut you down. But nothing is really ever gained in dialogue because truth doesn't come out of a conversation. It comes from reality. In fact, in Romans 6.17, I go back to that a lot. Paul says, you literally have a new standard of thinking if you're a believer. A new form of thinking. You don't think the same way. It says in Romans 6.17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Doctrine. Salvation is the grasp of doctrine. So these are very important foundational words. But it takes us to a fourth word. And each word sort of builds on the previous one. Objectivity leads to rationality, which leads to veracity. Here's where the noose gets tighter. That leads to authority. Authority. If it is objectively true, understood rationally, manifestly articulated as reality, then it carries authority. And this is where the pain starts to take hold of the culture. Because we proclaim biblical truth as objective, coming from the Word of God, as rationally understood, as the absolute truth, and consequently, it is authoritative. It is authoritative. These are the oracles of God. In Titus chapter 2, verse 15. This is a good text to think of when you think about authority. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now there's an unpopular approach to life. Let no one disregard you. This is the absolute opposite of the culture in which we live. Everybody feels they're completely entitled to whatever it is that they think about anything. But counter to that, the Word of God says, speak the Word of God with authority. Let no one disregard you. 
Scripture is the final word. It is the mind of Christ. Now, it is not acceptable to this culture to speak with absolute authority. Obviously, they hate it. It's not only the idea of authority, that's repulsive enough, but when with authority you're preaching the Scripture, the law of God, the requirements of God, and the gospel of God, that is compoundingly offensive. The churches have adjusted to this because they want to eliminate the offense, so they preach soft words, which produces hard hearts. One writer says, the one who really wants a tender heart should be calling for a jackhammer. Hard words, hard teaching are the jackhammer of God. It takes a great deal to break up our hard hearts, and the God of all mercy is willing to do it. But He always does it according to His Word. And His Word is not as easy on us as we would like. Jeremiah 23 says, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? When Christians opt out for smooth words, easy words, soft words, the result is hard people. So we have to be faithful to speak the Word of God with authority. Now that leads to a fifth word. And that is incompatibility. At this point, the objective word, understood rationally, yields truth, which is authoritative and incompatible with anything else. And the noose is really tight in the paradigm at this point. Truth is absolutely incompatible with error. It is the law of exclusivity. Truth is intolerant. First John 2.21, it's a short statement, maybe overlooked, so important. No lie is of the truth. No lie is of the truth. First John 2.21. Something can't be true and not true at the same time. No lie is of the truth. This is the incompatibility of truth. So here we are in this world demanding tolerance of everybody's truth, everybody's ideas, yielding up all authority for soft words, and fearing that somehow we might sound like our message is incompatible with any contradiction, we run from that kind of strong communication, fearing to offend, when offending is critical. Back to Galatians 1 again, Paul said, if somebody preaches another gospel, let him be damned. Paul says, 
If someone doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. You either have the truth or you're damned. They're not compatible, contradictory realities. Tolerance toward people, that's a virtue. Tolerance toward error, that's a sin. God hates lying tongues and the liars who use them. That's why Isaiah 8.20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because no light is in them. I mean, listen to these familiar scriptures. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or John 3.36 He who does not believe the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. Or 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Or 1 John 5.11 and 12, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's that incompatibility. The truth is incompatible with all error. So in our little paradigm, you start out with this. All truth is objective, understood by rationality, confirmed as the truth or veracity, carrying all authority, and consequently, incompatible with any disagreeing idea. That's why 2 Corinthians 10, we crush, we smash every idea raised up against truth of God. Now there's one final word that I would add, and it's the word integrity. The word integrity. This is so important. What I mean by this is the Word is not only to be proclaimed, it is to be lived. Listen as we just kind of wrap up to the words of James chapter 1, verse 22. And this is where your testimony comes into play. But prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, meaning Scripture, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed 
in what he does. So the final word is integrity. As Christians who believe these things to be absolutely true, we have the responsibility to live them out in a very, very hostile world. But this is our calling, and we confidently trust the Lord to protect us in the process. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we have a high calling, a holy calling. We are called to the truth, to be the people of the truth in a world drowning in lies. Help us to live it out, no matter how difficult or challenging it may become, because this is what you've called us to, and this is what you've equipped us to do from your word and in the strength of your spirit. Grant us grace, obedience, and faithfulness to be the people of the truth, to walk in truth. The truth in particular concerning you and your word and the gospel. May we be known as a church that is the pillar and ground of the truth. To that great calling, Lord, we understand you have called us, prepared us, and sent us. Use us to that end, we pray. In our Savior's name, amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com, that is, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the 
hostess of Truth Be Told Radio. See smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. God's Gift of Sleep This is Ken Ham, inviting you to visit the full-size Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky. Did you know your brain never stops working? It's hard at it during the day, but at night, it really ramps up. As you rest, your brain gets to work, processing, organizing, and storing all the information you learn throughout the day. And that's not all. Your brain also gets rid of waste, repairs cells, and moves memories to long-term storage. For children, it produces growth hormones. Yes, 86 billion brain cells are busy communicating with each other to coordinate all this and more. Wow. And you thought you were resting. The activity of rest is another example of God's design. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Plan your visit to the life-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Bring the whole family to this popular attraction. AnswersRadio.com.
This is Ken Ham, co-author of the eye-opening book on Noah's Flood, A Flood of Evidence. During your lifetime, you'll do something 500 million times. You'll blink your eyes. Blinking clears away dust and bacteria collected by an antibacterial fluid you produce. You use six tiny muscles to move your eyes in all directions in perfect coordination. Muscles also allow your retina to adjust for a range of brightness from 10 billion to 1. Oh, and your retinas are covered in blood vessels, but your brain just ignores them so you can still see. And don't forget that each eye has a blind spot, but it's in a different place in each eye, so it doesn't actually affect your vision. As the psalmist said, the seeing eye the Lord has made. Find resources for the whole family when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a full transcript when you go to AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes. It's true. 
Get old school. It's a mouthful. This is Ken Ham, author of the new devotional commentary on Genesis, Creation to Babel. What's in your mouth right now? What came to mind probably wasn't 700 types of bacteria, but it's true. They're important for digestion and for your immune system. Bacteria live all over and in your body. In fact, a human body has more microbes in and on it than human cells. And this isn't by accident. God designed microbes to help us. It's only in a cursed fallen world that some bacteria turn against us and now make us sick. And did you know that apes have very different bacteria living on them than humans? That's a puzzle for evolutionists, but it's what we'd expect because God created. Discover more of the wonders God has made on our faith-affirming website, AnswersRadio.com. You'll find resources to equip you to defend your faith at AnswersRadio.com. Joy. For our joy. 
you wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you For all the value, all our loss All the great need for the cross Jesus died, rose and paid the cost God made me and you Different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you the following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author. A multiple system defense. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. Your lungs are both warm and moist, the ideal spot for bacteria to rapidly multiply. So why don't we get more lung infections? Well, God designed multiple systems to keep your lungs clear. First, you produce a quart of mucus a day to trap dust and germs before air enters your lungs. Anything that makes it past that, well, it gets expelled up a so-called escalator with tiny waving hairs inside your lungs. And if that fails, special white blood cells are constantly in your lungs, on the prowl for nasty intruders. Without these systems, pneumonia would kill us. No, our bodies aren't the products of millions of years of chance. Subscribe to enjoy free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story. Of Jesus and His Oh, I love to tell the story of unseen. 
organ you don't have anymore. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. You used to have an organ that was vital to your existence and now you don't. But you're still alive. Okay, what do I mean? We're finishing up our Wonders of the Body series with an organ from before you were born, the placenta. Your first organ functioned as your lungs, kidneys, liver, digestive tract and immune system. Immediately after birth, changes cascaded through your body and you started functioning perfectly without it. When the placenta detaches, a huge wound is left that would kill her if her arteries didn't have muscles to quickly seal them off. Our bodies are masterpieces. Get answers to your questions about creation and evolution when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or share it with others at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, a mighty fortress.
Thank you for watching When We Understand the Text. Many of the Bible stories and verses we think we know, we don't. When We Understand the Text is committed to teaching sound doctrine and exposing the faulty. Please subscribe to this channel, like these videos, and share them with others. Also check out the What Podcast, 20 minutes of Bible teaching five days a week. Look for What on Apple, Spotify, or through whatever podcasting service you like to use. The following are the top 10 most watched videos for 2022. Molinism is a system of theology that attempts to reconcile divine sovereignty and human freedom. It was devised by Luis de Molina, a 16th century Jesuit priest, who said that prior to creating the world, God knew what we would do in any given circumstance. God created those circumstances and put people in them, knowing the decisions we would make so that his purposes are ultimately achieved through our free will actions. Molinist William Lane Craig wrote the following. By his middle knowledge, God knows all the various possible worlds which he could create and what every free creature would do in all the various circumstances of those possible worlds. For example, God knew that Peter, if he were to exist and be placed in certain circumstances, would deny Christ three times. So God created that world. Well, that sounds strange, doesn't it? In Craig's example, the only decision Peter can make is the one God knew Peter would make in the circumstances he put Peter in. In the Molinist universe, Peter does not have free will, and neither does God, for he cannot do what we won't do. God's will is determined by our will, even before we come into existence. That is just absurd. Acts 15:18 says, known to God from eternity are all his works. And Acts 17:25 says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Molinism is a false doctrine named after the heretic who came up with it because he hated the doctrine of God's sovereign decree. The Bible says God knows the future because he has determined it. Isaiah 46.10 says that God has declared the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose when we understand the text. The Purpose Driven Life is one of the best-selling books ever. Rick Warren called it the anti-self-help book because of the opening line, It's Not About You. He then makes it all about you. The book is written as a 40-day spiritual journey, answering the question, what on earth am I here for? He says that life is all about bringing glory to God. So far, so good. He encourages love, mercy, prayer, obedience, baptism, evangelism, and discipleship. But there is no clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. On day seven, Warren says to quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. If you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. This false conversion prayer has led to many false converts. In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. He told his disciples to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Warren never tells sinners to repent, nor does he warn of the judgment of God, which is the reason we need a Savior. What good is Warren's purpose-driven life without the purpose of the gospel? Though the book contains many Bible references, they're often ripped out of context, chosen from just about every translation to make the Bible say what he wants. In the end, the purpose-driven life will lead a person into more error than truth. 
Second Timothy 1.9 says that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when we understand the text. The Freemasons are a secret society, though they prefer to be known as the largest fraternity in the world. A local gathering is called a Masonic Lodge. With secret handshakes and rituals and high-profile members, the Masons have been the subject of many conspiracy theories. Freemasonry began as a guild of stonemasons and somehow went from stonecutters to strange cult. Their emblem is a compass and square, often with a G in the middle, said to stand for geometry or God. But most likely it's for the great architect of the universe, their universalist name for God. To be a mason, one must believe in a supreme being, and some lodges require belief in the Christian God. But this is not a Christian fraternity. Masons want members to ignore the exclusivity of Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can go to heaven by good works. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says we are saved by grace through faith and not our works. The Masons do not regard the Bible as the only inerrant word of God. It's just one of several volumes of sacred text, a moral guidebook equal to the Quran or Rig Veda. Masons do not regard man as sinful, just imperfect able to improve himself through acts of charity and civic duty. Anyone is capable of achieving moral perfection. All of this is Antichrist. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. And 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. A Christian should not pledge with the Freemasons when we understand the text. Redeeming Love is a historical romance by Francine Rivers, published in 91. Rivers says that when she became a Christian, she began to adapt true Bible stories into fictional romance. Redeeming Love is a retelling of Hosea set in the American Old West. In the Bible, God told Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he married a harlot named Gomer, who represented Israel's unfaithfulness. Hosea prophesied of the judgment of God, who is faithful to his promise, though his people were not faithful to him. The only similarities Redeeming Love has to the Bible story are that the main character's last name is Hosea, and he marries a prostitute. Gomer is replaced by Angel, a victim of sex abuse her whole life. Gomer and Israel were not victims. Angel catches the eye of Michael Hosea, who hears God tell him to marry her. After getting married, Angel runs away and goes back to prostitution, but Michael forgives her, and Angel learns true love. The story is now a movie pitched as a Christian film, though it contains nudity and lengthy sex scenes. Do not be entertained by sin Christ gave his life to redeem you from. The Bible says, flee from sexual immorality. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, even in what you set before your eyes. Redeeming love is a perversion of scripture and of people. Call out to the Lord, Psalm 44:26. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love when we understand the text. The Jesus Storybook Bible is a very popular book for teaching kids about the Bible. It was written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, no relation to Martin Lloyd-Jones, but do not think this is a Bible. Jones writes in her words, not God's word, and her words are dripping with sentimentalism, not scripture. For example, when God created man and woman, the book says, Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Can you speak with all the voices? 
In her version of the Bible, Joan seems to think that sin is forgetting that God loves you. She makes no mention of judgment and therefore no gospel. Without discernment, the Jesus Storybook Bible could lead to a wrong understanding of what the true Bible says. Furthermore, Sally Lloyd-Jones has included homosexuality in her children's books. She proudly admitted that in her book, Goldfish on Vacation, she depicted a family with two homosexual men. This is not a woman who is contrite in spirit and trembles at God's word, Isaiah 66.2. So how should you teach your children the Bible? Well, open the Bible and read it to them. Then explain to them what you read. You'll need to do your own study, maybe plan out lessons, pick verses for your kids to memorize. You don't need a published Bible study. Just use your Bible. As it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, even kids, when we understand the text. Beth Moore has written Bible studies with her daughter, Melissa, including studies on Galatians and Philippians. Come along with Melissa and me in this four-week, five-session study of the book of Philippians. Warnings have been given about Beth in previous videos. Here's what you need to know about Melissa. On social media, Melissa said she is praying the patriarchy burns to the ground when the Bible says the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. She is egalitarian like her mother, believing women should teach and have authority over men, contrary to what God has said in his word. Melissa celebrated without reservation the first woman vice president, Kamala Harris, one of the most pro-abortion politicians in American history. Kamala flaunts homosexual pride and has performed same-sex wedding ceremonies. Jesus said, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, repent of her deeds. Melissa shared Michelle Obama's praise of Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, who said before the world she did not know what a woman is. Melissa also shared author D.L. Mayfield's criticism of Christians calling us absolutely horrific when the state of Texas said they would prosecute parents who abused their children, attempting to transform them into the opposite sex. Is Melissa of the worldview that parents should be at liberty to mutilate their child's sexual organs as if they could turn boys into girls and girls into boys? Beth and Melissa Moore were asked about this months before making this video. Melissa responded by blocking, and no response came from Living Proof Ministries. Brothers and sisters, this is wicked. The Apostle Paul warned about teachers such as these, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people who capture weak women and are always learning, yet never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Follow Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness when we understand the text. Seventh-day Adventists say that worship should be on Saturday, not on Sunday, hence the name Seventh-day Advent. Their leading prophet, Ellen G. White, said that to worship on Sunday is to worship the beast. Seventh-day Adventism began in the 1800s out of the failed Millerite movement after William Miller made a bunch of false prophecies about the return of Christ. James and Ellen G. White became the most prominent leaders, claiming to receive special revelation from God. But like Miller, Ellen White also made false predictions about Christ's return. 
Adventists deny the existence of the soul, which also warps their doctrines about humanity, Christ, salvation, and hell, claiming that God would never send a person to hell. Adventists deny that people are born sinful, but only that they have sinful tendencies. Ellen White said that Jesus came to our world not to reveal what a God could do, but what a man could do. She also taught that Jesus did not atone for sins by his death on the cross, but that there is a final atonement coming later. So according to Seventh-day Adventists, your sins are not forgiven when you come to faith and you have no assurance of salvation. But the Bible says to followers of Jesus, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus warned that false Christs and false prophets would arise so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Beware of Seventh-day Adventists, a false church with a false gospel when we understand the text. If you were to die today and found yourself standing before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? How would you answer? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. What an immense, I can't can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you 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 were cussing the guy out with your friend, You'd never been in a Bible study. You'd never got baptized. You never. You didn't know a thing about church membership, and and yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because I, I don't know. Well, you know. Did, Excuse me, let me get my supervisor. Then go get a supervisor, Ranger. So, we're just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And and what about? Let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. <laughs> now, now that's the, that is the only answer. The Chosen is a TV series that is supposed to be about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ through the eyes of the people who met him. It is said that the stories come straight from the Gospels, but no, the stories embellish on and change the Gospel accounts. To give a few examples, when Jesus speaks the Beatitudes for the first time, it's not in the Sermon on the Mount to the crowds in Galilee as in Matthew 5 through 7. He literally tells Matthew to write them down. He later tells Matthew, I'm here to start a revolution. Jesus never said that. He said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, she says, you're a prophet and you're to preach at me. He says, no, but yes, that's exactly why he was there. He preached to her whole town. He said in Mark 1:38 that he came to preach. 
There are few scenes in The Chosen that are anything like the Bible. When The Chosen released their trailer for season three, there was a scene where Jesus says, I am the Lord, Moses. That's not in the Bible. But many pointed out it is in the Book of Mormon. By the way, Mormons produce this show. Writer and director Dallas Jenkins got online to say, Of course, I'm not quoting from the Book of Mormon. I've never read the Book of Mormon. But the point still stands that when you go beyond what is written, the results are not of God. Paul rebuked the Corinthians in this way. If one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, you bear this beautifully. Do not settle for counterfeits when we understand the text. In December of 22, the White House awarded Amy Grant for her artistic achievements, the first time an artist in contemporary Christian music received such an honor. A few days later, Grant made headlines again because she was hosting her niece's same-sex wedding, and suddenly it made sense how she got her award. For years, Grant has supported the gay pride movement. A growing number of CCM artists are doing the same. Reliant K brought on tour a foul-mouthed artist who goes by similar and claims to be queer. Dan Hasseltine of Jars of Clay, John Foreman of Switchfoot, and Kevin Max of DC Talk are gay-affirming. Similar comments have been made by Lecrae, Andy Minio, and Kirk Franklin. You might remember Lauren Daigle's I Don't Know response when asked if homosexuality is sin. Members of Mercy Me and Elevation Worship have also given ambiguous answers. A church co-founded by David Crowder is now doing gay weddings. Dolly Parton and Carrie Underwood have won double awards from the Gospel Music Association, though they openly support the Gay and Lesbian Alliance. Jennifer Knapp, Ray Bolts, Vicki Beeching, and Trey Pearson of Everyday Sunday say they're LGBTQ, and there will be more. Professing Christians who lust for sex, money, and the world's approval will show what they truly worship. Romans 1.32 says, although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Beware this movement of apostasy by holding fast to Jesus Christ when we understand the text. That's Pastor Gabe with when we understand the text, also known as what? WWTT. Check him out, WWTT on YouTube. And now here, this is Johnny Exer Tata. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata, and I cannot wait to hear those words God will one day say to me, Johnny, enter the joy of your master. Right there tells me that heaven is going to be all about joy, and it should be. After all, Jesus is joyful. He is a glad, he is a happy God, and he is driven to share his joy with us. But with all that joy, in the same way, God is also holy. That's another thing that he's driven to share with us. So heaven is a place of joy, but also a place of holiness. And here's the thing. God wants us to get a head start on heaven right now by being holy as he is holy and joyful as he is joyful. Now, true, most people don't put holiness and joy, you know, gladness together. But to God, they are inseparable. They are one and the same. God is joyful in his holiness, and he is holy when he is joyful. So today, let go of that itchiness to get things your way. In other words, let go of things that diminish your joy as well as diminish 
your chance to be holy. You will then be one step closer to all that God wants you to be when you get to heaven and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your holy master. Sorry, just having a dream. You'll never guess who was in it. They claim that the reason that Muslims convert, or at least a substantial number of them convert, is that they have dreams and visions of Jesus Christ. An Iranian convert, this guy's fairly typical. He said, quote, many people are having dreams and visions about a shining man dressed in white telling them about Jesus. Dreams. Christ appeared to them in their sleep. Virtually all my students came following dreams. Former Muslims are sharing their stories of discovering Jesus and praying that others will have the same experience. 20 years ago, we just started to understand this phenomenon about Muslims having dreams about Jesus. Approximately 50 to 70 percent of former Muslims who are now Christians came partially through visions and dreams. People in these streets and in these refugee camps from places where ISIS have occupied, even people from here, that are encountering Jesus in, in, in dreams and visions. Jesus dreams all the rage these days. A lot of stories, mostly from Islamic nations, interestingly, that Jesus appeared to a Muslim in a dream and they got saved. Now, before I go all grumpy and curmudgeonly, which are two of my spiritual gifts, if these folks really got saved, praise God, seriously, whatever happened in their sleep, we'll discuss. But if they got saved, thumbs up to that. Having said that, here comes the grumpy and curmudgeonly part. I would like to suggest to you, while they may have had a dream about Jesus, that is not the same as Jesus appearing to them in a dream. Five reasons why I don't think he does. I didn't do that. Number five reason, every single story that I've heard, perhaps there's one I haven't heard, but every story I've heard about these dream apparitions has a very interesting and consistent detail. These folks already knew about Jesus. The pump, if you will, had been primed. They'd already heard the gospel or they had heard about the person of Jesus Christ. Here is just one example, and if you will notice that the bottom of the screen says that this woman had been encouraged by her Christian friend to pray before the dream. So I decided to ask him, and so I did. And then... um the next day, I guess, I saw a dream, and I saw, in my dream, I saw Jesus was a bridge. I decided to come to him. If somebody already knows about Jesus and has a dream about him, it's merely that, a dream about something you're already thinking about. But it isn't Jesus appearing in a dream. Number four, if Jesus saves people through dreams, then why did he tell the disciples, and by extension us, to go and make disciples if he's already going to take care of it in their sleep? Number three, most of the world, including the Islamic world, 
has as much access to Christianity and Bibles as we do in the West. Why would Jesus go out of his way to appear in a dream when he could have just led that person to, you know, the Internet? Number two, why did Jesus wait 2,000 years to appear in dreams to save people? A lot of martyrs evangelizing in hostile nations, giving their lives when apparently they didn't have to if Jesus converts people in hostile nations through dreams. There's no evangelism necessary. But finally, the absolute nail in the dream testimony coffin, uh, the Bible, Hebrews 1, in the past, in other words, before Hebrews 1 was written in the past, God spoke to our ancestors and through the prophets at many times and in lots of ways. But something's changed in these last days. He has spoken to us by his son. Yes, God did appear to people in dreams in the Old Testament and in the book of Acts. But now we have the Bible, a more sure word. He speaks to people and converts them through his word. That's what the Bible said. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God, not dreams and visions while we rejoice if people get saved in the middle east we still want to be biblical in our understanding of the conversion process might they have had a dream about jesus i have no reason to deny that but when somebody says that jesus appeared to me that appears to go against the biblical testimony that god saved through his word agree disagree do you know somebody who had a jesus you had that experience please let us know in the comments below that was from wretched that was todd friel and now we got another one from johnny and friends Hi, I'm Johnny. You know, when it comes to working out his plan in our lives, God delights in using so many twists and turns. For instance, I mean, just listen, after 70 years in exile, okay, the Israelites finally received permission from the king of Persia to rebuild the temple, okay? But rebuilding it turned out to be harder than they thought because after they started, their enemies showed up. The bad guys even wrote a letter to the Persian king asking him to stop God's people from building the temple. Yet, just when it looked like the enemy had won, God showed the Israelites that he was greater, far greater than their enemies, because through a strange turn of events, the Lord arranged for Israel's enemies to go ahead and pay for the rebuilding. (laughs) So, friends, if you feel God's provided an opportunity and it has not come through, do not lose heart in him. Remember, when it comes to his plan, he loves designing all sorts of twists and turns. He specializes in arranging strange turns of events. So don't worry. He will come through with an ending that may well surprise even you. Prize pop quiz time. Whose pants are literally 
fire. You got it. The devil. And why exactly are his britches burning? Because he's a liar, liar. You sit on a throne of lies. Liar. He's a liar. He's a liar. Quiz question number two. Who was the first liar? Bingo, the devil. Question three. Who is the father of lies? We get it. It's the devil. I get it. Congratulations. Question number four. How does the devil cause people to sin? This guy's a liar. Are we seeing a pattern here? Question number five. Get ready for this. How is the devil like Panera? That's right. This is a lame sermon illustration. The devil is like Panera because when you visit Panera, the goodies on the shelf, mm, they look so good. You order your salad, you eat it, you finish it, and then you say, I'm still hungry. I'm hungry, Mother. I really am. Why does sin never satisfied? Because sin is a liar with a voracious appetite. With that in mind, please pass your papers to the front of the class and let's tackle seven lies about God. Hey, that sounds like a book from Erwin Lutzer because, well, basically it is. Here we go. God doesn't exist. There is no God. Sorry. The person who utters this absolute inanity has an agenda because the single most intuitive conclusion that we can draw is if you have a creation, you have a creator. If you have morals, you have a moral law giver. Why do they deny what is obvious? Because their agenda is to sin, suppress the knowledge God exists, and you are off to the sin races. Now, as a side note, if you've wondered, how is it that people can deny pink and blue, boy and girl, two genders? It's easy. Once you've denied the existence of God, which is even more obvious than genders, well, then you can deny anything. Lie number six. All paths, all journeys lead to the same God. Okay, my pluralistic friend, which happens to be basically the majority of Americans these days. Here's the question, if you're a pluralist, if Jesus Christ really is God in the flesh, and if Jesus lived a perfect life of morality, died a brutal death that sinners like me, like you, could be reconciled to God, if Jesus went to that much effort and even stated that he is the exclusive way, the exclusive truth, the exclusive one, if pluralism is true, then Jesus would have added, I was just kidding. Get there any way you want to. I don't care what you believe in. He would not go through such a costly endeavor if he were not the only way. Why would he do all of that and then let us worship a piece of wood? When you think about what Jesus said, what he did, it's clear pluralism. It just doesn't even make sense. Lie number five. God does not get involved with human affairs question answered at a certain point not very long ago in our history but by the deists people like thomas jefferson thomas Paine, and many others who said that the order of the universe seems to suggest that, that it couldn't just have been random um that uh, there may have been a designer 
but the, the designer didn't take any part in human affairs. So this is classic deistic thinking. God, he's so transcendent, so distant, so different. God is not involved at all with our life and our world. He just set the place spinning and went and took a nap or went to a party. If that's true, then life has no meaning. And the planet and eternity, they're up for grabs. The good thing is we know that God is invested and involved with human affairs because he's revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lie number four, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. But the God of the New Testament, he's pretty sweet, loving, and forgiving. Look <laughs> at and Sapphira. Ask the unbelievers in the book of Revelation. Ask Jesus, who said, I'm going to tell a lot of people, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because God is immutable. His character doesn't change between testaments. He's righteously angry and perfectly loving and forgiving in both the Old and New Testaments. Lie number three, God, he doesn't know our decisions before we make them. Open theists simply believe that when God created the world, he created it with possibilities unresolved possibilities and to the degree that the world consists of unresolved possibilities then the fact that god knows is that uh it may go this way or that way so it's really just the belief that possibilities are real god created a world in which the future is to some degree open open to possibilities that is a horrifying lie according to the bible he absolutely does he knows the end from the beginning he knows the thoughts and intentions of every human heart if God doesn't know our thoughts, then he's not omniscient. But wait, it gets even worse, my open theistic friend. I'm looking at you, Greg Boyd. Every decision we make was not only known, it was preordained by God. So just put that in your open theistic pipe and smoke it. Lie number two, oh, the fall, it ruined God's plan. This is plan B. Sorry, there are no plan Bs in God's economy. Well-intentioned Christians, throw this out because it kind of gets God off the hook for all of the effects of the fall. But Acts 2, Acts 4, make it plain. The fall was God's prearranged plan from the beginning so he could send his son so that his glory could be fully known. One last problem. If we can thwart God's plan, then we're more powerful than God. And last time I checked, we're not. And that brings us to lie number one, although they are all whoppers, when obeying God. I saw We're choosing his pleasures over our own. What? Here's the reality. When you know Jesus Christ, what pleases him will gradually come to please us. If our pleasures aren't in alignment with his, then our pleasures are, yeah, you know what sort I'm looking for, sin. Because God's ways are the best ways you can be certain if you choose to obey God and not your own desires you will be doing the most pleasurable thing that you can do. Furthermore, when God commands us to get our pleasures in alignment with his, it is the kindest gift that he can give. Think of it like this. You're hungry. I approached you and said, you can have 
this prime rib, or you can have this plate of what I picked off off of the front lawn after my dog was out there repeatedly. Which, which would be kinder? And the answer, of course, is not this. The prime rib, God's way is the prime rib. Our ways are like, well, what dogs create on your front lawn. God is not being cruel by conforming us into his image. It is the kindest thing that he can do. There you have it, seven. Notice we didn't choose six. Seven lies of the devil. So let's conclude with two final quiz questions. These are bonus points. Number one, how do you keep yourself from falling for one of the deceiver's countless lies? It's actually quite simple. Know the truth. And you only find that in the person of Jesus revealed in his inspired book called the Bible. Don't want to be taken captive with false ideologies. You got to read your Bible and Finally, and perhaps most mind-blowingly, where did truth come from? And the answer is, it didn't. Truth always existed. It wasn't created. It wasn't discovered. Instead, God is the truth. That's why Jesus said, I am the truth. It actually proceeds from him because he is the standard of truth. A statement of observation, it can contain truth, but only God is truth. And truth is only codified in the Bible. So here's the truth. God is good, God is able, and God is faithful. How do I know that's true? Because those are the three most common descriptors of God in the Bible. And God, unlike the devil, never lies. That was Todd Rio with Wretched. If you want to find out more about Wretched and have more Wretched, it's W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D. It's on YouTube and also on their website. They have a radio show and a TV show, Wretched.org. That's W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.org, Wretched.org. Here's the meme most central with Truth Be Told Radio. Our website is truthbetoldradio.com, and our email is truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com, Truth. Be told radio show at gmail.com. And that's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. Gonna go out with uh, Yancey and friends. Join me next time on Sundays and on via laptop radio. And bye for now. Yeah.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.